Chapters 1, 2, and 3 of John Barleycorn or Alcoholic Memoirs by Jack London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. CHAPTER One. It all came to me one election day. It was on a warm California afternoon, and I had ridden down into the Valley of the Moon from the ranch to the little village to vote yes and no to a host of proposed amendments to the Constitution of the State of California. Because of the warmth of the day, I had had several drinks before casting my ballot, and diverse drinks after casting it. Then I had ridden up through the vine-clad hills and rolling pastures of the ranch, and arrived at the farmhouse in time for another drink and supper. How did you vote on the suffrage amendment? Charmian asked. I voted for it. She uttered an exclamation of surprise. For, be it known, in my younger days, despite my ardent democracy, I had been opposed to woman's suffrage. In my later and more tolerant years, I had been unenthusiastic in my acceptance of it as an inevitable social phenomenon. Now, just why did you vote for it? Charmian asked. I answered. I answered at length. I answered indignantly. The more I answered, the more indignant I became. No, I was not drunk. The horse I had ridden was well named the Outlaw. I'd like to see any drunken man ride her. And yet, how shall I say, I was lighted up. I was feeling good. I was pleasantly jingled. When the women get the ballot, they will vote for prohibition, I said. It is the wives and sisters and mothers, and they only, who will drive the nails into the coffin of John Barleycorn. But I thought you were a friend to John Barleycorn, Charmian interpolated. I am, I was, I am not, I never am. I am never less his friend than when he is with me and when I seem most his friend. He is the king of liars. He is the frankest truth-sayer. He is the august companion with whom one walks with the gods. He is also in league with the noseless one. His way leads to truth naked and to death. He gives clear vision and muddy dreams. He is the enemy of life and the teacher of wisdom beyond life's wisdom. He is a red-handed killer, and he slays youth. And Charmian looked at me, and I knew she wondered where I had got it. I continued to talk. As I say, I was lighted up. In my brain every thought was at home. Every thought in its little cell crouched, 
ready dressed at the door, like prisoners at midnight waiting a jailbreak. And every thought was a vision, bright imaged, sharp cut, unmistakable. My brain was illuminated by the clear white light of alcohol. John Barleycorn was on a truth-telling rampage, giving away the choicest secrets on himself, and I was his spokesman. There moved the multitudes of memories of my past life, all orderly arranged like soldiers in some vast review. It was mine to pick and choose. I was a lord of thought the master of my vocabulary and of the totality of my experience, unerringly capable of selecting my data and building my exposition. For so John Barleycorn tricks and lures, setting the maggots of intelligence gnawing, whispering his fatal intuitions of truth, flinging purple passages into the monotony of one's days. I outlined my life to Charmian, and expounded the make-up of my constitution. I was no hereditary alcoholic. I had been born with no organic chemical predisposition towards alcohol. In this matter I was normal in my generation. Alcohol was an acquired taste. It had been painfully acquired. Alcohol had been a dreadfully repugnant thing, more nauseous than any physic. Even now I did not like the taste of it. I drank it only for its kick. And from the age of five to that of twenty-five, I had not learned to care for its kick. Twenty years of unwilling apprenticeship had been required to make my system rebelliously tolerant of alcohol, to make me, in the heart and deeps of me, desirous of alcohol. I sketched my first contacts with alcohol, told of my first intoxications and revulsions, and pointed out always the one thing that in the end had won me over, namely the accessibility of alcohol. Not only had it always been accessible, but every interest of my developing life had drawn me to it. A newsboy on the streets, a sailor, a miner, a wanderer in far lands, always where men came together to exchange ideas, to laugh and boast and dare, to relax, to forget the dull toil of tiresome nights and days, always they came together over alcohol. The saloon was the place of congregation. Men gathered to it as primitive men gathered about the fire of the squatting place or the fire at the mouth of the cave. 
I reminded Charmian of the canoe houses from which she had been barred in the South Pacific, where the kinky-haired cannibals escaped from their womenkind and feasted and drank by themselves, the sacred precincts taboo to women under pain of death. As a youth, by way of the saloon, I had escaped from the narrowness of women's influence into the wide free world of men. Always led to the saloon, the thousand roads of romance and adventure drew together in the saloon, and thence led out and on over the world. The point is, I concluded my sermon, that it is the accessibility of alcohol that has given me my taste for alcohol. I did not care for it. I used to laugh at it. Yet here I am at the last, possessed with the drinker's desire. It took twenty years to implant that desire, and for ten years more that desire has grown and the effect of satisfying that desire is anything but good. Temperamentally, I am wholesome-hearted and merry, yet when I walk with John Barleycorn, I suffer all the damnation of intellectual pessimism. But, I hasten to add, I always hasten to add, john barleycorn must have his due he does tell the truth that is the curse of it the so-called truths of life are not true they are the vital lies by which life lives and john barleycorn gives them the lie which does not make them towards life charmian said very true, I answered, and that is the perfectest hell of it. John Barleycorn makes toward death. That is why I voted for the amendment today. I read back in my life and saw how the accessibility of alcohol had given me the taste for it. You see, comparatively few alcoholics are born in a generation and by alcoholic i mean a man whose chemistry craves alcohol and drives him resistlessly to it the great majority of habitual drinkers are born not only without desire for alcohol but with actual repugnance toward it not the first, nor the twentieth, nor the hundredth drink succeeded in giving them the liking. But they learned, just as men learn to smoke, though it is far easier to learn to smoke than to learn to drink. They learned because alcohol was so accessible. The women knew the game. They pay for it the wives and sisters and mothers. And when they come to vote, they will vote for prohibition. And the best of it is 
that there will be no hardship worked on the coming generation. Not having access to alcohol, not being predisposed toward alcohol, it will never miss alcohol. It will mean life more abundant for the manhood of the young boys born and growing up, eh, and life more abundant for the young girls born and growing up, to share the lives of the young men. Why not write all this up for the sake of the young men and women coming? Charmian asked. Why not write it so as to help the wives and sisters and mothers to the way they should vote? The memoirs of an alcoholic, I sneered, or rather, John Barleycorn sneered for he sat with me there at table in my pleasant philanthropic jingle and it is a trick of john barleycorn to turn the smile to a sneer without an instant's warning no said charmian ignoring john barleycorn's roughness as so many women have learned to do you have shown yourself no alcoholic no dipsomaniac, but merely an habitual drinker, one who has made John Barleycorn's acquaintance through long years of rubbing shoulders with him. Write it up and call it Alcoholic Memoirs. Chapter 2 And, ere I begin, I must ask the reader to walk with me in all sympathy, and since sympathy is merely understanding, begin by understanding me and whom and what I write about. In the first place, I am a seasoned drinker. I have no constitutional predisposition for alcohol. I am not stupid. I am not a swine. I know the drinking game from A to Z, and I have used my judgment in drinking. I never have to be put to bed, nor do I stagger. In short, I am a normal average man, and I drink in the normal average way as drinking goes. And this is the very point. I am writing of the effects of alcohol on the normal average man. I have no word to say for or about the microscopically unimportant excessivist, the dipsomaniac. There are, broadly speaking, two types of drinkers. There is the man whom we all know, stupid, unimaginative, whose brain is bitten numbly, by numb maggots, who walks generously with widespread, tentative legs, falls frequently in the gutter, and who sees, in the extremity of his ecstasy, blue mice and pink elephants. He is the type that gives rise to the jokes in the funny papers. The other type of drinker has imagination, vision, even when most pleasantly jingled, he walks straight and naturally, 
never falls or staggers, and knows just where he is and what he is doing. It is not his body, but his brain that is drunken. He may bubble with wit, or expand with good fellowship, or he may see intellectual specters and phantoms that are cosmic and logical and that take the forms of syllogisms. It is when in this condition that he strips away the husks of life's healthiest illusions and gravely considers the iron collar of necessity welded about the neck of his soul. This is the hour of John Barleycorn's subtlest power. It is easy for any man to roll in the gutter, but it is a terrible ordeal for a man to stand upright on his two legs, unswaying, and decide that in all the universe he finds for himself but one freedom, namely the anticipating of the day of his death. With this man, this is the hour of the white logic, of which more anon, when he knows that he may know only the laws of things, the meaning of things never. This is his danger hour. His feet are taking hold of the pathway that leads down into the grave. All is clear to him. All these baffling head-reachers after immortality are but the panics of souls frightened by the fear of death, and cursed with the thrice-cursed gift of imagination. They have not the instinct for death, they lack the will to die when the time to die is at hand. They trick themselves into believing they will outwit the game and win to a future, leaving the other animals to the darkness of the grave or the annihilating heats of the crematory. But he, this man in the hour of his white logic, knows that they trick and outwit themselves. The one event happeneth to all alike. There is no new thing under the sun, not even that yearned-for bauble of feeble souls, immortality. But he knows, he knows, standing upright on his two legs unswaying. He is compounded of meat and wine and sparkle, of sun-mote and world-dust a frail mechanism made to run for a span, to be tinkered at by doctors of divinity and doctors of physic, and to be flung into the scrap heap at the end. Of course all this is soul-sickness, life-sickness. It is the penalty the imaginative man must pay for his friendship with John Barleycorn. The penalty paid by the stupid man is simpler, easier. He drinks himself into sottish unconsciousness. He sleeps a drugged sleep, 
and if he dream, his dreams are dim and inarticulate. But to the imaginative man, John Barleycorn sends the pitiless, spectral syllogisms of the white logic. He looks upon life and all its affairs with the jaundiced eye of a pessimistic German philosopher. He sees through all illusions. He transvalues all values. Good is bad. Truth is a cheat. And life is a joke. From his calm mad heights, with the certitude of a god, he beholds all life as evil. Wife, children, friends. In the clear white light of his logic, they are exposed as frauds and shams. He sees through them, and all that he sees is their frailty, their meagerness, their sordidness, their pitifulness. No longer do they fool him. They are miserable little egotisms, like all the other little humans, fluttering their mayfly-like dance of an hour. They are without freedom. They are puppets of chance. So is he. He realizes that. But there is one difference. He sees. He knows. And he knows his one freedom. He may anticipate the day of his death. All of which is not good for a man who is made to live and love and be loved. Yet suicide, quick or slow, a sudden spill or a gradual oozing away through the years, is the price John Barleycorn exacts. No friend of his ever escapes making the just due payment. Chapter 3 I was five years old the first time I got drunk. It was on a hot day, and my father was plowing in the field. I was sent from the house half a mile away to carry to him a pail of beer. And be sure you don't spill it, was the parting injunction. It was, as I remember it, a lard pail, very wide across the top and without a cover. As I toddled along, the beer slopped over the rim upon my legs. And as I toddled, I pondered. Beer was a very precious thing. Come to think of it, must be wonderfully good. Else why was I never permitted to drink of it in the house? Other things kept from me by the grown-ups I had found good. Then this, too, was good. Trust the grown-ups. They knew. And anyway, the pail was too full. I was slopping it against my legs and spilling it on the ground. Why waste it? And no one would know whether I had drunk or spilled it. I was so small that in order to negotiate the pail, I sat down and gathered it into my lap. First, I sipped the foam. 
I was disappointed. The preciousness evaded me. Evidently, it did not reside in the foam. Besides, the taste was not good. Then I remembered seeing the grown-ups blow the foam away before they drank. I buried my face in the foam and lapped the solid liquid beneath. It wasn't good at all, but still I drank. The grown-ups knew what they were about. Considering my diminutiveness, the size of the pail in my lap, and my drinking out of it with my breath held, and my face buried to the ears in foam, it was rather difficult to estimate how much I drank. Also, I was gulping it down like medicine, in nauseous haste to get the ordeal over. I shuddered when I started on, and decided that the good taste would come afterwards. I tried several times more in the course of that long half-mile. Then, astounded by the quantity of beer that was lacking, and remembering having seen stale beer made to foam afresh, I took a stick and stirred what was left till it foamed to the brim. And my father never noticed. He emptied the pail with the wide thirst of the sweating plowman, returned it to me, and started up the plow. I endeavored to walk behind the horses. I remember tottering and falling against their heels in front of the shining share, and that my father hauled back on the lines so violently that the horses nearly sat down on me. He told me afterward that it was by only a matter of inches that I escaped disemboweling. Vaguely, too, I remember, my father carried me in his arms to the trees on the edge of the field while all the world reeled and swung about me and I was aware of deadly nausea mingled with an appalling conviction of sin. I slept the afternoon away under the trees, and when my father roused me at sundown, it was a very sick little boy that got up and dragged wearily homeward. I was exhausted, oppressed by the weight of my limbs, and in my stomach was a harp-like vibrating that extended to my throat and brain. My condition was like that of one who had gone through a battle with poison. In truth, I had been poisoned. In the weeks and months that followed, I had no more interest in beer than in the kitchen stove after it had burned me. The grown-ups were right. Beer was not for children. The grown-ups didn't mind it, but neither did they mind taking pills and castor oil. As for me, I could manage to get along quite well without beer. Yes, and to the day of my death, I could have managed to get along quite well without it. 
but circumstances decreed otherwise. At every turn in the world in which I lived, John Barleycorn beckoned. There was no escaping him. All paths led to him. And it took twenty years of contact, of exchanging greetings and passing on with my tongue in my cheek, to develop in me a sneaking liking for the rascal. End of chapter 3